Okay, so I'm going to just try to talk a little bit more about kindness. Uh, it was funny, the other day, my son, who is 11, he goes to this school in our town, which is, um, for lack of a better word, a hippy-dippy school. Um, <laughs> I like it, but it, 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 he came to me, he said, Dad, why, why do we have to talk about kindness so much? I'm sick of it. Like, uh, can we learn something about the world? Like, everyone, they just want to tell us to be kind. And it's funny, I was like, well, it hasn't really worked with you. <laughs> he's, he's not kind at all. Um, but kindness is so important, and it's so essential, and it's such a thing worth talking about. And when we were thinking about what kind of theme we wanted to do, it wasn't really Ted Lasso. Uh, what, we, what, what was so great about Ted Lasso was that it dramatized a, a, a reliable or authentic experience of kindness, and everyone who was watching it realized they hadn't seen a show about kindness that was also entertaining for a long, long time. It's a lot harder to pull off. Let me tell you a story about kindness that happened to me recently. So I told a couple of you maybe at dinner last night, but over Christmas we had uh, we were very fortunate. My younger brother and his family live in England, and um, we had been wanting to spend Christmas with them for years. He's been there for 15 years. He's got three kids. We never get to have Christmas together, and so my parents very very graciously decided to make this happen for all of us. And I have three little three boys. And um, as you know, before Christmas this year, it looked like we were about to go, and then Omicron comes. And it's just like tearing through London like the plague. And every five seconds you're hearing some terrible thing about what's going on in London. Delta Airlines cannot keep up with the latest uh, you know, protocols. You're hearing from the UK, you're hearing from the United States government, you're hearing from, from Delta, from Virgin Atlantic, all their subsidiaries. You're, it, it looks like it's going to be impossible to go. Somehow, by the grace of God, we figure it out, mostly with my younger brother's help. We get to the airport three hours ahead of time with all of our paperwork. We're also bringing Christmas with us for three small children and their three small children. So we've got a lot in tow. There's a lot of things going on. We get to our airport in Charlottesville. It's a little podunk airport. And we check in. I show them our passports. I show them our test results. I show them all this stuff. We go and we just sit around the lounge for a long time and we've, we finally get on the airplane. It takes us to Atlanta. We're in Atlanta at around 7 o'clock looking for food, hanging out. Kids are going crazy. Around 10 o'clock, we're finally getting ready to board to go to London. And they do one more check for documents. And I look in my bag and I can't find our passports. This is like mistake 101, right? This is the worst thing that could have happened to me in this position. And uh, it soon turns out that we have left our passports. I have left our passports on the counter in Charlottesville, and we are not going to England that night. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, but it's stressful, and anyone who's married knows that that's... <laughs> There's like no conceivable way to explain this in a way that's someone else's fault. It is thoroughly, completely, 100% my mistake. No one else. Yes, I remembered 99 things, but I forgot one, and that's the only one that mattered. Call up Delta Airlines. Your estimated wait time is 148 minutes, and this is 11 o'clock at night. Um, I can't get through to them. We go to a hotel. 
I wake up the next morning at 5 o'clock and go into the Atlanta airport. It's teeming with people because everyone's flying for Christmas. And uh, I basically need to plead my case. I need to see if I can find a human being. And I go to the first desk. They say, oh, you got to go to this desk. I go to the second desk. You're like, oh, my gosh. You did what? <laughs> like, well, you need to find a red coat, you know? And uh, this is because COVID, there's no one who's worked there for more than two weeks. And, and I finally find a red coat, and she's gruff. And it's five in the morning. She's an airline employee. I don't know why anyone ever wants to work for the airlines. I'd rather do basically any other job in life than work for the airlines. Maybe you work for the airlines. God bless you. Um, I find this woman, and she seems gruff, and she, I explain to her what's going on. I tell her I've got children sleeping at the hotel next door, that I have just messed up royally. And she says, okay, let me get this straight. <laughs> she repeats it back to me. She says, let me, let me go see what I can do. Um, she says, first of all, you need to book a flight back to Charlottesville to go grab your passports and come back. That's the number one to do that. But then I'm going to go and back. So I do that, you know, a gazillion dollars later, the same day. She goes back into a back room. She has the magic number to reach the people in Charlottesville. No one else can. And she comes back, and it's like 15 minutes I'm waiting there. And I'm thinking, this is going to be the worst day, the worst Christmas, and it's going to be legendary. We're going to laugh at it about it, but not for a long time. <laughs> and she comes back, and she says, well, I have some good news. I talked to the people there. Uh, the pilot on the first flight out of Charlottesville is gonna bring you your passports. They've got them. You, here's, a, here's a gate pass, you go meet the pilot there. I'd been told that there was no way this was gonna happen. No one wants to take responsibility for a, five passports. And I just look at her and I say, you know, you've really, Kimberly Adams is her name, if you're watching. Um, <laughs> I just say, thank you. I say, you've, you've really, you're my Christmas angel. Uh, I don't know what to say. I'm just undone by this act of kindness. And she's looked at me and she just says, well, we got to help each other. And I had to rely on the kindness of strangers. I spend my life trying to avoid relying on the kindness of strangers because I have what is called a low anthropology. <laughs> I tend to think people act in their own self-interest and uh, they justify it later. Um, and my experience is sort of borne out about that in the world. It can be kind of a cold universe, right? I mean, if, and it, it, just go spend time in an airport. You know, it's, it's not pleasant. It's everyone rushing and stressed out and masked and crammed in and kind of angry. And it's just, it, it's, it's terrible. Um, but this act of kindness to me, um, it made Christmas. And uh, it was a very, very beautiful thing. Now, I couldn't help but think about that as I was preparing for this talk. Because kind people uh, are, are, can, when we experience genuine kindness like this, not from someone who knows us, but from someone who doesn't know us, it can be, it can change everything, can't it? Um, you know, when I grew up, Christians were thought of as kind. Too kind. Who was the, what was the great cultural example of a Christian in the 1990s? What? Ned Flanders. Did someone say it? Ned Flanders was the great cultural archetype of the Christian in the 1990s. 
Anyone, you know, okadotally do, you know, he, he was, he was, he was kind, he was nice, he was saccharinely nice, he was a doormat, Homer just took advantage of him over and over and over again until he'd sort of explode, but he was, the Christian was seen as nice and kind to a fault. What's the archetype for the Christian in the, in the, two, in the aughts and the tens? the great one. Angela Martin from The Office. <laughs> the Office, if you don't know, it's like, the, it's a, there's a culture around The Office. Uh, it's the most, view, like, you know, streamed series of all time. It's captured people because it was available for so long. Every one of your, your children has watched every single episode. A lot of people view it as comfort food when they can't go to sleep. They watch The Office. And this entire time, the meanest character on The Office who's not nice or kind, is the outspoken Christian, right? <laughs> Angela Martin. Now, there's some moments where she's kind of okay. <laughs> but she's no Ned Flanders. So when I'm thinking about the niceness of this stranger, I'm thinking about the niceness of the, the kindness of grace, and I'm thinking about what does Christianity have to say about it? I was, I, I, how did it get to this point where it flip-flopped so much? We were seen as kind to a fault, and now we're seen as like basically really mean. Um, well, it does get you to think about the difference between niceness and kindness. There's been a lot of talk, I think, about like how uh, niceness is, um, uh, is not a great quality. What do you think of when you think of niceness? Niceness is usually a sort of pleasing. It's someone who is polite, who's cordial, who's uh, uh, agreeable, and ultimately someone who's positive. I think that's sort of what a nice person is. It's it, niceness. I don't want to live in a world. You know, I live in the South, uh, or it's kind of the South, Charlottesville, and people are basically nice. And as I came from the North, where people are not nice, but they're kind. They're just not very nice. And the criticism that I always heard growing up was that people in the South were nice but not kind. Turns out none of these blanket statements really apply. But kindness is less to do, with, niceness is usually about sort of greasing the wheels, being pleasing to other people, usually out of, to make sure things kind of go according to your plan and things go smoothly. Being kind is usually, is, is more often seen as helping other people, right? Kindness is, uh, is, is, is other-centered. Kindness comes at a cost to the person being kind. And a lot of our, it can, it, it's oftentimes, some of our favorite cultural stories are where kindness is masked by negativity. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, which keeps getting remade every five years. <laughs> I'm talking about Carl Fredrickson in Up. I'm talking about um, Ron Swanson in Parks and Recreation. I'm talking about Medea in the Tyler Perry movies. Not nice at all, extremely kind. The Dowager Countess in Downton Abbey, <laughs> right? We're so drawn to kind but mean people. <laughs> I think it's a false dichotomy, of course. Like, you can be both nice and kind. And that's what Ted Lasso sort of is about. You can be both nice and kind and recognizably human. And it's a great, it's a great story for that reason. Um, but it made me wonder, like, what, what is the things that make those characters authentically kind? 
What, why, or why are we not more kind in our lives? What, what is it that, I, when you meet people, when you, the Angela Martins of the world, what, what, why is she not kind? Usually it's because she strikes you as very controlled, very fearful. Something about meanness is a function of fear. Uh, people are not kind a lot of times because they're, they, they've been hurt before. And they're afraid if they're kind to you that you're going to jump all over them. It didn't go well that time, so uh, I don't trust kindness. I think we also are not very kind because we think kindness is sort of, um, unconsciously we, we believe that kindness is reserved for kind people. It's like, it's a trait you have, and it's a trait you show to other nice people, right? Other kind-hearted people. I, this notion of some people deserve kindness and some people don't deserve it. We get caught up in deserving. We know that we're, we're sort of, that's in, um, uh, the, and the people that don't deserve it, by the way, are not only the ones who are mean, but the ones who project strength. And the more we spend our times projecting strength to the world and not vulnerability, not need, the less there's a premium on kindness. And yet, I don't know anyone who does, thinks of themselves as an unkind person or doesn't think that the world would be better if we had more kindness in it. So kindness, as I see it, is not a matter of deserving, but it's a matter of need. No one, when you get down to it, really deserves kindness, and yet we all need it. I'm going to give a few examples of this. And uh, then I want to talk about God's kindness. Do you trust that kindness actually works? This is another reason people aren't more kind. I don't think that we trust that it, that it really can change people. We think that if we don't bring the law, if we don't threaten people with a punishment or with taking something away from them, they will not be nice or they will not please us. And yet kindness, we find out, actually does work. One of the things we do on Mockingbird's website is we, to the extent that kindness is a euphemism for grace, we try to find examples of where this is true. I remember in 2015, that we, there was something called the kindness diet. You heard about the kindness diet? Well, it was actually just a study that was commissioned at a Canadian university of 187 women. They were asked questions about their ideal weight uh, and their self-esteem. They were then asked if they had ever talked to their romantic partner or friend about their weight concerns, and if so, how that person had reacted. If the friend or partner said something like, your weight is fine, that was considered a message of acceptance. Well, if they said something like, you have reason to be concerned, <laughs> who says that? <laughs> or, off, or offered to help them lose weight, then they were considered a contributor to that per person's sense of weight loss pressure. The results with these 187 women showed that for those who were concerned about their weight, if they received supportive feedback in response to their worries, they were far more likely to maintain or lose weight than those who didn't. In fact, those who did not receive report, for, who received unkindness when it related to their body image, gained weight. Now, we, we can see the data and we can know that it's true, but we don't trust it. And so we think, well, I, unless I'm being threatened with, you know, 
rejection, then I won't be able to ever change. This weight is just the tip of the iceberg, but that's very close to the bone for some of us, isn't it? It works on a deeper level, though. Um, I remember there was a couple years ago at a TEDx talk in Boulder, Colorado. A guy named Aaron Stark got up and said that he was almost a school shooter. You ever watch this one? It's amazing. I almost wanted to play it. It was a little too long and, frankly, a little too heavy. But this is a guy who gets up there and he says, my family uh, was violent, drug addicted. He talked about going to 30 to 40 high schools, being the perpetual new kid. He said he smelled bad. He had a weight problem. Every school had a whole new set of bullies and at home, too. He was told by his parents he was worthless. He got really aggressive. 15, 16-year-old, he ends up homeless pushed all his friends away by lying to them and stealing from them to feed his habits, doing everything that his family actually had taught him to do, the complete wrong way. Finally, at 16, he says he's sitting in his friend's best friend's shed where he was the only place he could sleep. My mom told me she'd buy me the razor blades if I wanted to end my life. My heart ripped out of me. I ran straight to the darkness. I had nothing to lose, which meant I could do anything. My act of doing something was going to be get a gun and attack either my school or my mall food court. It didn't matter about the people. What mattered was doing the most damage. I got the gun. My best friend saw the place that I was in. Now, I had stolen and lied to my best friend repeatedly. I had ruined all his stuff, and he didn't care. He still refused to show me cruelty. He brought me in, and he did something very simple. He said, would you like to watch a movie with me? And that simple act of kindness, where he treated this young man, like it, Aaron, like it was just a, just a regular Tuesday, that was enough, he said, to be treated like a human being when he least deserved it, be treated with kindness, it changed his entire world. That one small act of kindness always reminds me of what St. Paul talks about spiritually in Romans chapter 2. Maybe you know it. He says, uh, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on other people doing bad things and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. That's also translated sometimes as goodness. But it's a beautiful thing because it means that the gospel uh, doesn't necessarily lead to more school shootings or more obesity or being, letting people off the hook, acting supportively towards uh, those, especially those who don't deserve it. It's not somehow going to, the world isn't going to spin off its axis into sort of oblivion. It tells us a little bit about where actual kindness comes from. I think there's several engines of kindness. Uh, gratitude is definitely an engine of kindness. One of my favorite quotes about kindness is, 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 is links it to low anthropology. It, does, it, it actually, the lower your anthropology, the lower your expectations of other people, uh, the more kind you tend to be. 
Alain de Botton writes this. He says, Kindness is built out of a constantly renewed and gently resigned awareness that weakness-free people do not exist. I'll say that again. Kindness is built out of a constantly renewed and gently resigned awareness that weakness-free people do not exist. That no matter what facade of strength a person may be evincing, they are just as much in need and yearning for kindness and just as impervious to exhortation and just as, just, or for that, just as liable to make them do bad things as, as, as anyone else, no matter what it appears like. So the lower anth your anthropology, the more necessity you will see for kindness. The, and we're not talking about positivity here. This is not a depressing message. It's the opposite of that. It is the prelude to charity and other focus. The more we realize that we're all hanging by a thread. When the curtain is pulled back, everyone is more anxious and afraid and wounded and weighed down than they let on. Even the entrepreneur billionaire and the couple in love, even them, they're in pain too. The chief reason we believe the family across the street is so functional and not in need of our kindness is that we don't know them very well. That's the chief reason. So, where does kindness come from? I believe it comes from the conviction that everyone is hurting and that no one reacts well to recrimination. Why is kindness, though, important to the Christian? I think it's important because it's so often experienced as grace. I, when we, I, one of the things I was thinking about when we, when we read this, the kindness of grace, it's almost like redundant. If, if grace doesn't look... If there's not a kindness inherent to grace, I don't know if it's actually grace. Or if there's not a sort of a, a, a grace inherent to the action, I'm not sure it's actually kind. It, 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 kindness exists outside the bounds of deserving. So the more obsessed we get with who deserves what, the less kindness there will be. Because that's always a quid pro quo situation. I remember one of the great acts of kindness that I have, have, have um, read about. Paul, uh, uh, Todd talked about um, Thornton Wilder. I'll talk about Tennessee Williams. Maybe you know his play, Night of the Iguana. It's a, it was made into a beautiful uh, movie, <coughs> which is worth watching, actually. It's the story of a defrocked Episcopal minister, which is, you know, I, so I dedicate it to you, Everett. <laughs> A guy named Lawrence Shannon, who, after leaving the ministry, takes up giving bus tours through Mexico. And on a trip he's leading with uh, teachers from a Baptist college in Texas, Shannon becomes uh, romantically entangled with the young niece of the group's stern matriarch. Though he's innocent of any sort of wrongdoing, the matriarch in question decides to ruin his career as a tour guide in the process, uncovering his past that he'd been defrocked. Shannon has a nervous breakdown, and it leads him to heavy drinking. Uh, and he uh, hijacks the bus and steers it to a remote hotel on the coast where there are no phones, just to buy time. And there, in the midst of his despair, he meets a struggling artist named Hannah, played by Deborah Carr, who takes care of her aging grandfather there on the Mexican coast. Now, Hannah gets to know Shannon, 
and there's no romance yet between them. She sort of takes care of him and begins to nurse him back into shape, counseling for him. But the real breakthrough to this man's resurrection comes one evening when Shannon and Hannah find themselves alone. Hannah removes a crumpled pack of cigarettes from her pocket. She discovers only two left in the pack and decides to save them for later, putting them away. This is the dialogue that, that happens. Shannon, may I have one of your cigarettes, Miss Jelks? She offers him the pack. He takes it from her, crumples it, and throws it off the veranda. veranda. Never smoke those. They're made out of tobacco from cigarette stubs that beggars pick off the sidewalks and out of gutters in Mexico City. Have these, Benson and Hedges, imported in an airtight tin, my sole luxury in life. Hannah says, why, why thank you. I will, since you have thrown mine away. <laughs> Shannon looks at her and says, I'm going to tell you something about yourself. You are a lady, a real one and a great one. Hannah says, well, what have I done to merit that compliment from you? Shannon says, it isn't a compliment. It's just a report on what I've noticed about you at a time when it's hard for me to notice anything outside myself. You took out those Mexican cigarettes. You found you had just two left. You can't afford to buy a new pack of even that cheap brand, yet you put them away for later. So you put them away for later, but when I asked you for one, you offered it to me without a sign of reluctance. Hannah responds, aren't you making a big point out of a small matter? Shannon says, just the opposite, honey. I'm making a small point out of a very large matter. The world has totally beaten this man up. He's suffered the consequences of his actions. Uh, he's suffered the justice of the world, as well as quite a bit of injustice. And this tiny act of kindness gives him hope. This little act of mercy engenders mercy in return. He all of a sudden wants to give her his sole luxury in life. Where does kindness come from? It comes from prior kindness. That's why we, as Christians, that's why it's important. That's why, that's why we preach the gospel. That's why Mockingbird exists, to, to, to just repeat the same song over and over and over again. If you want to see an increase in kindness in the world, that's the only thing that's got a shot. Definitely not more finger-wagging. Um, but why else is it important to the Christian? Not necessarily because we want the world to become a better place, though we do. I think it's important because it paints a picture of how God is. How God is with us. And uh, to, to, to paint this picture more fully, I want to talk about Roy Kent. You see, I, the, the, the show Ted Lasso, if you haven't seen it, it's about a football team or a soccer team in the UK. It becomes managed by or coached by an American football coach from Kansas. And he gets over there, he's a fish out of water, and one of his star players is a guy named Roy Kent, who is about the most gruff person you could possibly imagine. He's not appear nice at all, and he certainly doesn't appear to be kind. And he's also kind of aging. He's, he's about to, he, he used to be a star, but he's kind of a has-been. 
And he, we watched the first season. I'm not giving many things away, but I'm going to give something major away in a second, so buckle your seatbelt. But he, um, he, his chief rivalry on the team is with a young upstart, a young star named Jamie Tart. Now, Jamie not only uh, dates the woman that uh, he sort of got feelings for, but Jamie can do anything on the, on the football pitch. He's kind of the, he's very arrogant, he's hard to like, and by the end of the season, he gets traded. Cut to the next season, Roy has retired and has become a bit of like a truth teller on the British television, telling people in his gruff way what they're doing wrong, and basically being not very kind or nice. But Ted Lasso decides he wants Roy back, and Roy decides he wants to get back into soccer. And Ted also decides that he's going to accept Jamie back onto the team, who's sort of fizzled out by making some stupid reality television show. And so Jamie's back, Roy's back, they have a real clash, um, and they have a big important match coming up against uh, Manchester City. Man City, the, you know, the great sort of powerhouse team in the UK. And they're going to play in Wembley. Right? I know it's a lot of setup, but this is important. <laughs> um, what happens is um, Jamie, Jamie's father, shows up and asks for tickets. Jamie's father's not very nice, and he's certainly not very kind. And you all of a sudden see where Jamie's arrogance and his hurt comes from. And you feel you want to be kind to Jamie as a person. It's the moment where the vulnerabilities are shown. But he decides he gets his father tickets. His father watches the game. Of course, Jamie chokes terribly. Plays his worst game of the season. And uh, they're in the locker room at the end uh, afterwards, and they're licking their wounds. And, you know, if, uh, if, if you know anything about locker rooms, especially professional athlete locker rooms, they're like inner sanctums. They're where you go to be safe, to, lick, to, to, to you know, collect yourself, to be, to be patted on the back, or to cry. It's also sort of an inner sanctum of masculinity. You kind of don't, don't puncture that bubble. Well, there's a knock on the door, and Jamie's father comes in. And we're going to watch that, what happens next. Now, Roy, by the way, has got a beard, and Jamie does not. No chance. Oh, and there he is, my son. My own flesh and blood. <laughs> Poor Jamie, my son. Now, maybe I'm thinking his heart's still in Manchester, and that's why he missed that sitter in the first half. Oh, ho, ho. Woo! You absolutely baldy. <laughs> you baldy, what were you thinking? Oh, I'm only kidding, I'm only kidding, eh? <laughs> hey, look, uh, do us a favour and get them one book past security. They want to go on the pitch, take a few snaps and all that, yeah? Rather than not... Yeah, they just want to look around it, won't we take a second? <laughs> I'd rather than not... <laughs> well, you know, can I go? Little moody. It's just because you got your ass served to you, I'm a player, are you? Don't speak to me like that. Uh, don't speak to me like that. Uh, don't speak to uh, me like that. Uh, okay, well, let's see if you can hear this. Hmm. You know that equal TV show you made? It just made it easier for Manchester City to kick you to the curb. And look where you are now. Twaddling about with a bunch of amateurs. No offence, no offence. <laughs> 
Don't turn your back on me, you. Oh, yeah. Okay, you can have that one for free. Can you not go big time? Hey, let's have it, Jamie. Don't you forget where you came from. Watch the door. Oops. I know that the Cockney is really hard to understand. <laughs> He's ridiculing his son. He's dressing him down. He's saying it's your fault that you played so poorly. And uh, this young man who has been so mistreated by the one who, who was supposed to be supportive of him, who humiliates him in front of all of his friends, he, he, he punches him, he retaliates, and then you watch as uh, Roy, his enemy, sees what is going on, and he knows the one thing needed. The only thing that matters is kindness and grace. He goes to Jamie and he hugs him, and Jamie's so defended that he's sort of like this, and then finally he lets loose, and he starts to cry. And George Harrison starts to play <laughs> on the back. And you know that a new day has dawned, for both of these men, it's an extremely important thing. So kindness is important to us as Christians, not necessarily because the world would be a nicer place, but because it's at the heart of who God is. Kindness is a euphemism for grace. And come to find out, God is a bit like Roy Kent. He's not always that nice. Sometimes we experience God's alien work is what the Lutherans call it. The way that we're humbled before we can receive something good. And certainly, Jamie does not need to be humbled any more than he is humbled here. But what we know is reliably is that God is revealed in Jesus Christ is the, is the God who goes towards you in your defeat and in your shame and when you have nothing to offer. But God does not dole out kindness in accordance to those who are kind, to those who have accomplished the most random acts of kindness. No, you and I, who have failed to repay God's kindness, who have failed to pay it forward, well, even us, we are the recipients of the same reliable uh, heat-seeking missile of acceptance at our worst. The kindness of grace is what occurs when the human nature meets God's nature, when scorn is repaid with love and cruelty with kindness. 
And you and I, sinners that we are, are welcomed back into the light, are ushered forward into the light of our forgiveness and our absolution. No passport necessary. Amen.